Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Welcome to the PMNR Report. We are a podcast documenting grand rounds that take place here at UT Health's Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We're exploring the latest trends, controversies, and the advances in the world of PMNR. Today we have Dr. Mark Latosh, Distinguished Professor of Kinesiology at Penn State University. His field of research is in motor control and how the nervous system interacts with our body parts and then the environment to produce purposeful and coordinated actions. He has a particular interest in motor synergies and movement disorders and is currently the founder and director of the Motor Control Laboratory at Penn State University. Welcome, Dr. Latosh. Thanks 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 for being here. Thank you very much. Today's talk was uh, focused on the principles of motor synergies and um, some new words that I've heard, you know, um, ASA or anticipatory synergy adjustment, which I thought were really fascinating. But first off, I want to get to know you a little bit. Can you give me uh, a detail that maybe most people don't know about you? Okay, so uh, I was born in Moscow, in the country that doesn't exist anymore. It was used to be called Soviet Union. And then I graduated from an English high school, which uh, explains some strange features of my accent, maybe. And then uh, I studied in the Moscow Institute of uh, Technology and Physics, uh, specializing in first in general physics and then in physics of living systems. And that's where I became interested in human movement, because this is one of the functions of the human body that can be relatively objectively quantified based on classical mechanics. Uh, But then when I emigrated to Chicago, which took quite quite a bit because our family waited for eight years for permission to emigrate. And so during those eight years, I mostly worked as an archaeologist. Wow, really? <laughs> yes. And as a translator what? and editor. So, uh, yeah, so I, I can dig really well. <laughs> as, as an archaeologist, what, what kind of things did you explore? What, what kind of places so did worked, you go to? Yeah, I worked in two main places. So one of them was the former capital, uh, one of the former capitals of the Golden Orders of Tata Mongols. It's on Volga River, or very close to Volga River, not far, about 100 kilometers from the Caspian Sea. Uh, it's a place which is half desert, half prairie, uh, and uh, the, this city uh, was never destroyed by any invaders and people left it because the trade routes changed at some point. But then uh, the other part was um, the digs uh, in between the Azov Sea and Black Sea. Uh, 
there was an old Greek uh, colony or town named Germanas, and mm-hmm. then followed by uh, Middle Age Russian uh, kingdoms, small kingdoms, and well, it, people always lived there. So those two places. <laughs> is there is there like a particularly cool thing that you dug up? Uh, well, of course, we uh, dug out a lot of cool stuff. Uh, um, for example, I don't know, golden bracelets in this uh, wow, yeah. Tata Mongol uh, capital and uh, pieces of Greek ceramic uh, with pictures of wow. uh, gods and heroes. Uh, so, yeah, qu- quite a few interesting things. <laughs> okay, but, but we digress. We digress. We digress. Exactly. <laughs> so then I moved to America, settled in Chicago for some time, got my PhD in physiology. And then worked in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, mostly in the Rush Presbyterian Centrix Medical Center in Chicago, uh, before uh, coming to Penn State. Excellent. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about your concept of the invisible carrots? Okay. So uh, the idea of carrots, I don't. I even don't remember where it came from, <laughs> but uh, the idea that. Uh, our movements are controlled by setting what we call referent spatial coordinates. So point in space where you would like to be if suddenly all external forces disappeared and you were allowed time to get there. <clears throat> so uh, th- that uh, then I thought about Hajan Asridin, the famous character of Persian uh, Middle Age fairy tales and legends. Who controlled his donkey by specifying by putting the, the carrot uh, on the at the end of a stick and then <laughs> holding it in front of the donkey's nose? And then I thought that that was a very useful metaphor uh, to formulate questions. Like, for example, if we want to move uh, to another point in space, we kind of specify a reference coordinate where we want to be. But in order to do that, we have to move our legs. And so we have to specify trajectories of reference coordinates for the feet, for example. But mm-hmm. the feet cannot move by themselves. We have to specify reference coordinates for the joints, for the muscles. We can go down to motor units even. Uh, and at each of those steps, reference coordinates can be visualized as mini carrots at a particular level of analysis. <laughs> I'd always seen that from, uh, you know, like in Looney Tunes, or in the classic cartoons mm-hmm. where the, the carrot is dangling in front of mm-hmm. either a horse or a donkey. I never knew where the origin of that was from. So that, that was really, really great. Um, so the I think the idea that I'm kind of getting right now is that we essentially are a system of tasks. And when we want to do something, we... We focus on a task and there's that invisible carrot that's in front of us and say we want to touch that thing and we have to use everything going from the brain, the, the, the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves, all the way down to be able to have the inherent stability to be able and also agility. These are two principles that you had brought up during, uh, during our uh, grand rounds to actually be able to execute that movement. Um, so the... The ideas of stability, I think, are the big, and agility, and change in stability, and being able to control those two things, I think, were the, the most, uh, the big takeaways from, and it was, the, it was our main topic of discussion. 
Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your initial research in this? Uh, and maybe later on we can discuss po possible pathologic models that we've seen in humans and, and even the possibility of uh, applying, applying these methods in clinical practice in the future. So most of our research is being done on uh, students, uh, so young, healthy people uh, who for $20 will participate in any experiment. So it all started with the development of uh, the uncontrolled manifold hypothesis, and I should credit my two very good friends and colleagues who played central role in that, Gregor Shona and our late, unfortunately, uh, colleague John Schultz from the University of Delaware, uh, where uh, the, the question was prompted by this famous experiment by Bernstein that I showed at the beginning of the lecture on blacksmith. Uh, and so Bernstein found out that the trajectory of the tip of the hammer was the least variable trajectory compared to trajectories of the individual joints, which suggests that individual joints compensated for each other errors in individual trials. So if one joint deviated in one direction with respect to hammer trajectory, other joints would deviate in the opposite direction. Uh, in order to explore whether that's true and whether and how how to turn it into a tool, this concept was developed primarily by John uh, by Gregor Schoner, uh, who uh, really did the theoretical part of mapping between. Uh, the space of elemental variables like joint rotations, for example, and the space of performance, in that case, trajectory of the tip of the hammer. Mm -hmm. So they did their first study with John Schultz uh, on sit-to-stand action, and then John Schultz came for the second half of his sabbatical to my lab, and we did the second study, which was shooting from an infrared pistol to an infrared sensitive target. Right. So it's a very strange selection of the task because but, it by was the way, so that would, complicated. That, that is one of the most cited uh, papers that I it, saw it, it <laughs> that, is, that came yeah. out of your lab. Yeah, those two papers <laughs> are uh, well cited. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, and then uh, we continued for some time studying these synergies and exploring them across tasks and how they depend on task parameters, like for example, we did it during cyclical multi-finger force production task, how it depends on the speed uh, of the task, and a few other things. And then in one of the studies, I asked one of my students uh, to perform this task, and then we decided to take a look what happens in preparation when you start with a steady, from a steady state uh, task and you turn it into a quick action. And to our surprise, we discovered that prior to the quick action, the stability index of the ongoing steady-state task dropped. And it dropped quite substantially, and it started to drop quite some time before the action initiation, like three, four hundred milliseconds before the initiation of action. That's a very long time by neural standards and by motor control standards. So uh, we decided to explore it as a separate topic uh, in our lab uh, studies. We did these studies in older subjects and found out that both stability indices, so the synergies that stabilize performance, and agility indices, this drop in the stability indices prior to quick action, which we call anticipatory synergy adjustment. So both were reduced in older people Mm -hmm. Heal, uh, healthy older people as compared to younger people. Mm -hmm. 
And then about 10 years ago, we uh, started collaboration with our clinical colleagues at Penn State. Unfortunately, the medical school is very far away from the main campus, 100 miles. So uh, there, is, wow. there is a problem of... So we had basically to set up a separate lab in our medical college, mm-hmm. uh, which required duplicating equipment and finding space, and both were not trivial. But fortunately, it's all in the past, so we've been working on Parkinson's patients uh, with our clinician colleagues, but also patients with multiple sclerosis, cerebellar disorders, systemic disorders, brain disorders, and a little bit with stroke. Uh, And we focus primarily on two main tasks. One of them is a multi-finger coordination task, and the other one is whole body movement. So standing, swaying, mm-hmm. initiating step, and, mm-hmm. and things like that while standing. And and so our, for our listeners, I think one of the the easier easier tasks that were created in the laboratory uh, to kind of kind of wrap our heads around was you gave a, a really great example of the, the task was to stand in place and maintain posture and have uh, a weight that is off center of the gra- off center of gravity and. We basically have to create stability within our system for good posture, um, and then the weight had to be dropped. Mm-hmm. And then in in those moments, we're able to measure the the stability in the system, um, and and see that there is an increase of variability. I, I think during that period of time, that that is called the anticipatory synergy adjustment. Synergy adjustment. Right. Um, and then we're able to see that we anticipate that in in a a pretty long period of time prior to the actual event of dropping that weight and then it goes back into a steady state of center a steady state well in in control subjects in young control subjects uh you can see this anticipated synergy adjustments really three four hundred milliseconds in in this type of a task when a person is standing holding a load and then releasing the load uh, in a self-initiated self-paced manner. We also did similar studies with control healthy people with my colleagues in the University of Illinois in Chicago using a pendulum perturbation device. So it's an it's a thing attached to the ceiling that drops as a pendulum and it has okay. padded surfaces that hit the standing subjects at the shoulders level. Oh. And if you are standing you can see it coming and you can prepare to the impact. Interesting. And people show very strong anticipatory synergy adjustments about three, four hundred milliseconds before the impact while the pendulum is still swinging. They also show better known anticipatory postural adjustments, but mm-hmm. they happen much later. They happen about 100 milliseconds prior to the impact. What do you mean by that? Like uh, they, they have like changes in their po- changes like leaning in into it. To... Changes in baseline muscle activation levels. So anticipatory postural adjustments are usually quantified with changes in the muscle activation levels prior to a perturbation, predictable or self-initiated action, uh, which has an effect on posture. So these have been studied for a long, long time uh, already, I think since 1960s, uh, when for the first time this... uh, They were, by the way, discovered for the first time by my first advisor, uh, now late, unfortunately, Professor Viktor Gurfinko. and so we recorded both in these patients, uh, in these subjects, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. uh, 
and uh, they're very consistent and they're very strong in uh, young healthy people. So, but when we started to look at patient population, we discovered that they were all but gone in patients with very early stage, for example, of Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. uh, stage two, when uh, clinically these patients show no signs of postural instability. So we did not expect them to see any troubles with postural control. But these methods of analysis of synergies, of studying stability and agility, both showed that the patients are already uh, impaired. They right. were already impaired. They showed low levels of stability during steady state while just standing and holding the load. And they also showed very small anticipatory synergy adjustments. Uh, in quite a few of those patients, they were not seen at all. Um, wow. prior, prior to releasing the load. Wow. This is, I think this is extremely, extremely interesting because we're, we're talking about a, um, a essentially screening tool, possibly, uh, in patients who are not demonstrating any clinical signs of disease, but we're able to detect it possibly through this um, through measuring ASA or anticipatory synergy adjustment, um, this little time period. Uh, I think the, the other interesting thing that we had noticed was, um, after treatments, even with dopaminergic replacement agents or with DBS, that we also noticed some other interesting findings. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. Uh, and the findings are quite contrasting. So dopamine, Replacement drugs like Aldopa, uh, they lead to an improvement in both indices of uh, control, stability and agility. Uh, and they also show it in both types of tasks that we study, which is a multi-finger force production task and kind of the other end of the spectrum, whole body multi-muscle task. Uh, the changes due to... Uh, L-DOPA to adding L-DOPA in the patient are primarily due to releasing uh, variables along directions when they don't hurt performance. That's what we call good variability in our jargon. So patients under those drugs show much more good variability without showing much of a change in bad variability at all. So they become kind of more relaxed in, in their performance or less rigid. Mm -hmm. uh, with DBS, the situation became a little bit more complicated because these patients show improvement in the anticipatory synergy adjustment, so an improvement in agility, without showing an improvement in stability indices, which is potentially dangerous mm -hmm. because these people can feel that they can move much better, much more fluently, much faster, uh, but their stability is still very bad. And faster movements, more vigorous movements are sources of larger perturbations for posture. So as a result, this may be really dangerous. Yeah, I think that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's something that we should probably talk, probably have further conversations about regarding, uh, you know, safety of, of, of functional movement, functional transfers. And when we talk to our, our physical therapists and occupational therapists and our family members, um, as, of course, as well, as well as the patient, regarding uh, safety around the household and uh, you know just looking out for basically reduce trying to mitigate the reduce uh, mitigate the risk of falls that's, uh, yeah that's a very important point which we've been discussing uh, among my colleagues uh, for a long period of time 
how much of the changes in behavior that you observe in patients are adaptive to the original problem and how much of them are really caused by the problem. Because the adaptive changes probably should not be fixed, or at least they should not be fixed without first thinking for a long, long time. Uh, and uh, a typical example would be shuffling gait in Parkinson's disease. Uh, it's very well known that you can draw lines on the floor and people start walking with more normally looking steps. But that may not be a very good idea because if you make larger steps, the forces acting on your foot every time you contact the ground are larger and your body experiences stronger perturbations. So if your postural control system isn't good, isn't functioning properly, then making large steps may not be such a brilliant idea. And the shuffling gait may be actually the good thing mm -hmm. uh, to do uh, as an adaptive strategy. And maybe that's why people who uh, show these nice steps while in the lab, while stepping over the lines, they shift back quickly to the shuffling gait when they step outside the lab because it's a much safer strategy. Hmm. So what I'm, what I'm hearing kind of is, um, again, patients who aren't exhibiting any clinical signs and we can potentially catch these very subtle changes and we can measure them with, um, remind me, what is the... Well, the, the, okay, all right. So the tool that is very easy to use is the hand test tool. Because for the postural synergies, you have to put uh, electrodes on the subject. You, uh, it's, it's much more cumbersome. The multi-finger force production test is extremely quick, very easy to do, doesn't require any uh, powder, requires minimal specialized equipment. Uh, so in one of the studies with deep brain stimulation uh, that we performed, it showed correlations between indices of synergy in the multi-finger task and multi-muscle whole body task, postural task, and also showed correlation in indices of agility, of anticipatory synergy adjustments. This suggests that the brain mechanisms that are involved in both are shared across different tasks. If that is true, and we're still uh, we're continuing studies in that direction, if that's true, this means that even if you're interested in postural control in a patient, you can actually run a multi-finger test mm -hmm. and get results that are relevant to postural control and that are much easier to run. And uh, at some point in future, I just hope that every physical therapist or neurologist would have on the table four force sensors and uh, a lab connected to a laptop. Sure. And in 10-15 minutes after the subject, your patient performs a bunch of trials, you immediately get a result whether the data within the normal range that you expect for persons of that age or they're beyond three standard deviations. And if they are, maybe the patient should go and have an MRI done mm -hmm. or something more invasive. More, yeah, more, more investigation may be yeah. required. Just, and and that, that, that could be super powerful, I think. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a big picture kind of person, a, uh, an, an idealist. I think that this could possibly even be, you know, used prior to discharging our patients from rehabilitation, or even we could track it during uh, during the rehabilitation process, similar to how we keep track of FIM scores or, uh, or func functional independence measures. We know that the stability indices are very much sensitive to practice. We ran a lot of studies; they change very quickly and very strongly with practice, appropriately designed practice. 
So using uh, this as a tool to gauge progress of a patient over the duration of treatment, whether it's uh, treatment with drugs or physical therapy, I think that would be a fantastic idea, yeah. but has never been done, unfortunately. And now uh, I just have a question from our audience uh, from earlier where uh, we posed the idea or we just wanted to see what your thoughts were on patients, not with just subcortical issues, but possibly a peripheral neuropathy or a decrease of sensation. And, and for me, even more specifically, a decrease in uh, proprioception mm -hmm. and uh, vibration sense uh, mm -hmm. and, how, and how that might affect tasks and, and synergies. Um, what, what do you think about that? Well, we have only indirect evidence uh, related to this question. So, uh, in young, healthy people, visual feedback in our typical lab tasks is dominant. So, if you remove the visual feedback, uh, synergies fall apart and uh, you cannot see much of stability of their produced action, which is well known, by the way. It's well known that when people close their eyes, Mm -hmm. uh, they stop producing constant force and sure. usually the force drifts to low values, which is a sign of loss of stability. Yeah, it's classic uh, Romberg test. <laughs> uh, in particular, right. So, uh, on the other hand, I mentioned during the talk that we tested uh, a few, um, well, about a year ago, we tested one of the so-called diaphragmatic patients, of patients with large fiber peripheral neuropathy, who lost completely their sensation below the level of injury. I would say it's not an injury. It's a, it's a state mm -hmm. probably triggered by some kind of virus. Well, nobody sure. knows for sure. But um, these patients learn how to move without any reflexes and without any feedback from proprioceptors, but only, of course, under the control of vision, continuous control of vision. So we tested one of those patients in our multi-finger synergy tasks, and she had the same results as aged-matched uh, healthy people under visual feedback, but without mm -hmm. any proprioceptive feedback. Wow. Now, what does it tell us about the role of proprioceptive feedback in healthy people? I do not really know. Uh, I wouldn't generalize uh, without running proper studies. We also know that muscle vibration uh, is leading to a drop in the synergy indices and it's also surprisingly leading to a drop in indices of agility. Hmm. Uh, so it has a strong central effects, I would say supraspinal effects, on, on top of the expected effects at the segmental level like tonic vibration reflex mm -hmm. effects and other uh, vibration effects on, uh, mediated by proprioceptors. But really, it's an open open field. So if anybody wants to run such studies, uh, <laughs> please let me know. I would be thrilled. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Latash, what, what future um, directions do you think this type of uh, research will go in? There are two main future directions. One is basic science. We just want to know how the system works. And as a physicist, I always uh, look for laws of nature. So I see for myself that the main goal of my research is discovering laws of nature that lead to normal biological movement. Uh, the laws of nature that I described in physics textbooks in high school are obviously insufficient because uh, 
if you put a live frog and a toy frog side by side on the table and you walk around and you come back, the toy frog will be there as prescribed by laws of mechanics, but the live frog will be gone. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't think that living beings violate laws of nature, but apparently they are not slaves to those laws of nature. They learn how to tweak them. Uh, and uh, that's to me the, more, the very interesting uh, question theoretically. Practically, of course, we would like uh, our clinical studies to result in developing new tools, new clinical tools, whether these are early diagnostic tools for neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's or tools to measure progress or regress uh, in the course of the disease with therapy over the progression of the disease. Uh, but, of course, that's our second uh, holy grail. <laughs> All right, that's really well said. Is there anything that you would like to plug today, Dr. Latash? Um, no, not much. I'm very happy to be in Houston. Uh, this is my first time in your beautiful city, and I hope to come here again. Excellent. Thank you for, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.